Welcome to the Juggling Without Balls podcast. My name is Monica Parkin and I am your host. And every week on the show, I'm going to be talking to powerful, successful women who juggle it all. And when I say juggle it all, I mean everything. Kids, health, aging parents, careers, relationships, you name it, we're going to talk about it. So stick around, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a seat and enjoy the show. jugglers and welcome to another episode. I'm really excited today to welcome Valerie Weens to the show. Valerie is a registered nurse. She's also a case manager who advises families on how to help their aging parents and loved ones. She's also the author of a new book called What to Do About Mom. And in that book, Valerie offers all kinds of tips and insights and information not only from a nursing perspective, but from her own experience about caregiving ideas and also Canadian resources. And we're going to talk about some of those ideas and concepts today on the show. So welcome, Valerie. Thanks a lot, Monica. Yeah, super excited to have you here. As I mentioned in the intro, you have just written a new book. So let's just start with that question. You know, what was your inspiration to write? What's it called, first of all, even though I already talked about that? And what was your inspiration for writing it? Well, what inspired me was the question I would get at my job. I'm a case manager, which works with seniors in the community, and we try and set up services for home support in the home. We're also the link to having people apply for facility. And the question I would get, and my husband came up with the book title, people would call and say, what do we do about mom? It was a very, you know, at some point people asked that. So I used the word mom because it's more the question that we get, but it really is for any, any senior or any person that you're caregiving for. So having gone through caregiving with my own parents, and having this at work, I mean, it's pretty much all I did for four years. So some of the things that I would learn, my husband suggested I just write it down in a book because it might help others. Yeah, fantastic. And and that's so true. Usually when we go through something ourselves, we we have all this knowledge that we can share. And often we forget to do that, to write it down or to record it or, or it, you know, it just kind of gets lost and and. When it's not as fresh, it's hard to remember too. So writing it down in the moment and then also combined with your own job experience, it sounds like, well, at least I found reading the book that it wasn't just your experience, but it was also reflecting on the experiences of your clients and how you could kind of guide them through different situations. I think you work full time. Is that correct? Yeah, well, three quarter time, four days a week, I'm working as a case manager. Although while I was looking after my parents, I had a full time line for a large part of that. And really just juggling way too much. And women our age, whatever age we're at, we do have that sandwich generation, which a big part of our our generations as we grow in age, we're looking after too many things. Women as a tendency, but you know, our hearts and our our arms expand to the world that we have and the caregiving role. And it's not always just women, but it's that tendency. I know actually even in my parents' My dad was way more the nurturer than my mom. He, like if there was a sick kid, he was the one that was doing it. But he also went off to work and, and did yeah. his own thing. But, you know, it's the taking on so much. Yeah, yeah, trying to take on everything. So let's talk about this book. So how long did it take you to write it? So you were writing notes all through the process while caring for your mom, while helping with clients. But 
what was the process for you of finally kind of putting it all together? What triggered you to go from this is just some notes to actually, you know what, I think I'm going to write a book that's going to have value for people. Oh, it took way too long, actually. But initially, I was actually going to write a book about raising quirky kids. And I still have that one on the go. But as I was going through this, I kept, you know, bouncing ideas off of my husband and and my sister and my kids even about caregiving. And it became this was more the focus. So this is my first book. And I hope to do better and more organized and make it a lot faster with my second one. I did take a weekend course. And the course had all your, organized everything into questions because questions and stories are what help people learn, which is why I put a lot of stories in. And, but then during the course of caregiving for my mom, which was four years long, we didn't expect her to actually live that long. I was writing notes, but then she passed away. And I, I had a really hard time writing, what do we do about mom with mm. uh, grief? So I did shelve it for quite a while and then picked it up again. And, and then, I, then I finished it. So too long. <laughs> I think if I had outlined it a little differently. So things I'd learn for doing it again. Yeah, too long in a way, but also the perfect amount of time in a way, because maybe you needed that amount of time to process those thoughts and those ideas and to grieve your mom. No, from a from a publisher's perspective, maybe it feels too long, but from the from a creative perspective, you know, maybe it was actually the perfect amount of time. In your introduction, you talk about caregiving, and I love this, as an opportunity not only for change and growth, but also a mindset that's that's part business rather than just martyr, you know, like that oh, poor me, I got to do this, or I'm I'm being selfless and doing this. But also, it sounds like there's a bit of a, a little bit of a need for this kind of logical put things in a box piece to it. Did I encapsulate that right? And, and you want to talk about that? Yeah, no, really, that's a great question. I come from a fairly emotional family. All of us can dro- cry at the drop of a hat. And while that's great for empathy and for a, a lot of the tender, sensitive things that that brings out, it doesn't drive your life well. It's sometimes, I think, a framework that you can pick things. And this is, this is more my husband's approach and probably how our kids are a lot more cut and dry and objective. So I've learned after 30 years of being married to be more okay, objectively. Let's talk about our goals. We do this as a family for other things and then add the emotions and the caregiving onto it. But it was also born of people I talked to in my work where the families would, I mean, some of them would just be crying on the phone or when I have in-person mm-hmm. visits, they, it is very, very sensitive. And I never want to take that away from it. But when people are only driven by emotions, you can only give until those emotions run out. You can only give when you love somebody and you can only give when you feel like that person deserves it. And that's the part that I think is not as healthy I think if you start with, well, my parents, it's not because they raised me. It's not because they did such a great job. It's not because I have a great relationship. It's because I have a responsibility and how can I do that? And when you make it a little bit more objective and more of a homework exercise, I think it can steer the ship for people who don't have great relationships, for moms who really did not deserve lots of care and attention later because they they were damaging to you or for moms who were amazing but the kids are busy there's so many scenarios 
where you can't have emotion drive it clear or positively because it takes too much from you or you don't want to give. So all of those are emotional language. And my thoughts have been, if you start with a framework and say, I have a responsibility, these are mom's needs, what things can I give? What things can I give just because it's a human being that I'm connected to or responsible for? How can I hire somebody else to do this? It's about taking care of what needs to be taken care of, whether you have the feelings behind it or not. So I'm not saying that everyone has to be completely objective, but it's a good exercise to, to write things down and recognize the needs and also recognize what you can do. Yeah, absolutely. To take that pause and step back and and be able to look at the big picture, right? Because when you're in that emotion, whatever that emotion is, it's really hard to actually see the big picture and and yet your decisions are driven from a different place. So I like that idea of having that Mm -hmm. logical framework of what needs to be done, but then also having the compassion and the kindness and the love, you know, and gluing those two together. And you're right, not every parent-child situation was perfect. And to recognize that, that not every not every kid that's caring for a parent is caring for a parent that was amazing. Many of us are and did, but not everyone got that childhood. And and for them to still be able to provide great care, but not feel that that heavy burden of of guilt because they're, they're just sitting in these emotions at the same time. That's fabulous advice. Uh, so later on, you know, you get pretty clear about, about what caregiving is not. And what it's not is it's not manipulating mom into doing things that are for her own good. And I think this is a situation, you know, where a lot of people mean well, well, we don't want mom to do this, or we don't want mom to do that, or what if she falls, or what if this, or what if that. And so we think we're doing the right thing for her by kind of, you know, tricking her, manipulating her into doing something. But in fact, it maybe isn't the right thing. And and in reality, that maybe we're actually causing harm with really good intentions. And I think this has maybe been your experience with, with clients too. Is that right? Oh, very true. Yeah. A lot of times what my job is, is I, I meet with seniors and their families, and they very often want different goals. And quite quickly, families will go to safety and mom's going to need more care. We need to have her in a facility. And most often, moms and dads will be, oh, my gosh, I'm not leaving my house. And it causes a very big divide of of intent, but also it it ends up being almost adversarial between the, the children who want the best, they want safety, and the mom who says, I'm actually fine. And the things you're worried about, you know, between softening with old age, between being wiser as you get older and perspective where you say, you know, the things you're worrying about are not that important to me. Even even as far as the children worrying about mom being lonely or at home with not, no, not that many visitors, which is, of course, endemic. It's a very large worry that we all have for seniors. And that's why I included that happiness graph in the book, it's a U-bend about where happiness is. And it's actually across cultures that, you know, 40s and 50s, you're at the lowest because you're juggling a lot. Mm-hmm. And as people age, their their contentedness increases. Their, there's joy in watching the birds. There's a comfort in being in their own home that when you're 40, 50, you're trying to solve the problems 
that a mom might not see. She might just see the birds and the smells and the comfortable things in her home. So it does have children trying to push mom into doing something for her own good and mom not seeing it. Sometimes with dementia and other factors or mom is not seeing the true picture. That's for sure. That's a whole different situation than what I think the question intends. But trying to push mom into facility or into different decisions, it's generally from a, a really good place of being worried. And sometimes, to be honest, I see families and I don't know why the mom doesn't see this. So it's a very nuanced and multifaceted concern. But re- fairly recently, in the last year and a half or two years, the government made a new consent and capability law. And what we used to do as case managers is make a plan with the family and do an application for long-term care placement quite quickly. We would do it early on, knowing that they had two years to wait. And many times, families would say, just don't talk to mom about it. When it comes time, we'll present it to her. But don't talk to mom because she won't like this or she won't accept it. And now... The focus is much more person-centered for much of healthcare anyways. And I look back and wonder how we ever did. It was done with good intent by healthcare professionals and families, but it wasn't person-centered in that a senior decides. I mean, most wouldn't decide to go into a facility on their own. Yeah, just that idea of having some autonomy over your own future, you know, like who wants to have decisions made in their absence. I remember my grandma before she passed away when she was a lot younger saying, whatever you do, please do not make me get do crafts when I get older. Like, don't make me do crafts. That would be torture. And just as you're talking, I was thinking I could see, you know, kids saying, oh, we need to get mom into a home because she's all alone and she's lonely and, you know, she'll be depressed, whatever. And I'm thinking me, myself, I just want to be at home alone. Like I'm an introvert. I would love to just sit and read a book and watch the birds and be on my own. And it would feel actually kind of like a punishment for someone to place me in a social setting because they thought based on their experience and their life experience and the lens that they're viewing the world through, that that's what I need. But I also remember being in the hospital room with my dad and we were talking about, you know, some of these end of life decisions and things and, and saying to the doctor, Hey, do we need to discuss this down the hall? And he said, no, I don't, I don't discuss things in secret away from patients. Like, you know what? You're right. I wouldn't want someone talking about this stuff outside of the room with me either. I remember being in labor and the midwife and the doctor talking outside the door about like what they're going to do with me. And I was like, get back in here. I'm part of this decision, you know? And it's the same with, with seniors, you know, their body might be old, but unless like you say, they've got dementia, their mind is still working and they deserve to be part of that process. Right. Oh, for sure. No, that's great examples because people should have a say in this. And for me going into a facility, eating at a table with other people, Oh, that's like, that's torture for me. And we quite often say that's one of the benefits. And, and you know, it is, there's, there's wisdom in a lot of these things. But the thing about facility placement that a lot of families don't recognize is that facility placement, the reason for it is unscheduled care needs. Mm-hmm. It's not falls risk. It's not loneliness. It's when you have needs that you can't meet with a schedule. They, they're during the night, someone's walking or walking during the night, sleep night shift. And a lot of times there's lots of good reasons for facility placement, but 
I actually have one lady just recently where she said, I worked in facility. She was a retired care aide. And she said, I'm very familiar with it. And yes, I'd like to go into, I think it's too much for my daughter right now. And I need to go into a facility. And it was her choice. It's just, yeah. but there's, as long as there's safety, like there's, there's definitely things to, to look at. But when you're looking at, at what's good for mom, involving her. And I think part of my job is coming up with really creative solutions. Like if your solution is to stay in your own home as an introvert and to look at the birds and to have a nice quiet home, I would like to recognize and value that and then add a few pieces of safety so that everyone can relax a little bit. Yeah, figure out yeah. how you can get what you need emotionally and how your family can feel comfortable that you're safer. Just moving on, so you tell this wonderful story about coming home from caregiving, I think, and complaining to your husband about how hard it was and the demands and... And I almost got the sense that maybe you're having a little pity party and not to make fun of you, but you know what I mean, where you come home and you're like, oh, this is so hard. And and he said to you, you know, let's be people who give and don't resent. And and what a paradigm shift that was for you. And it, it got me thinking about the show is about juggling lots of different responsibilities. And, and sometimes we do need to kind of shift our mindset. And one of the things you talk about is being able to figure out like what can you outsource and what can you do that you really get joy out of doing like where can you give from your heart and what can you outsource so that you don't sort of start to feel that resentment so that you're giving truly in ways that you want to give and maybe you've got some examples of this or what you might have done and this is actually probably the heart of my book which is why i think that question is so great it was the attitude shift and I did have pity parties. Oh, my goodness. You know, I was working four or five days a week. Our daughter was in university in nursing school as well. So, of course, I'm reading a lot of her papers and helping because I've gone through nursing as well. So, um, And then making meals. The youngest was still at home. Mom and dad needed things. And my mom was in a facility, and my dad was calling me to pick up the darn Rice Krispies yet one more time. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. I, I knew about it on sa that Saturday I had to buy it. But when he'd call on Thursday that he needed it that day, oh, my goodness, it was like, why is he taking from me? And part of visiting my mom, I, I had sewn all her clothes so that they can adapt. So I sewed up the back of them with ties. She had outfits. Mom really liked being dressed well. So we'd have outfits lined up. I'd pick up her out her clothes for the next couple of days, lay them out so the carriers didn't have to not know what she wanted. And it just was so much that everybody was pulling me in all those directions. And I felt like I didn't have a moment to myself. I could barely go for a walk and take care of my, my own needs. But I would vent. And the job was this, and the kids were that, and the parents were this. And... I didn't know how to put any healthy boundaries. And that's why when, when my husband was talking about let's be people who give, he also talked about boundaries. Like when you mm -hmm. come home, one of the things he suggested, come home, you can vent to me for 10 minutes. We'll put a timer on. You touch that tree. You leave work at work. Yeah. You leave it at that tree. When you come in, you're fully present for the kids. And then the next thing we did was we put boundaries on what I was available for my parents. And we said, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, I'm yours. I'll work, come right from work, and I go spend the whole evening with my parents. I would feed my mom, help out with things with dad. And my family at, at home would know not to expect me at home Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. 
And that meant I was home the other days. I had to think of easy meals for the Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, or let them fry an egg. It didn't matter because I knew what my boundaries were. It also meant that when dad called me on a Thursday, that was great. I was on for him. And if he called me on a Wednesday, he was waiting till Thursday. And not in a mean way, but in a healthy boundaries create, you know, good fences make good neighbors, right, Monica? Yes, <laughs> and, yes. Uh, By the way, we're neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, it's why, what it did was as soon as I created those boundaries that I didn't know I needed, my whole being just relaxed. And what I was able to do on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, I was fully present with my parents. I wasn't torn into thinking I should be at home. I should be doing something else. I was present. I was able to give from a whole heart and not a scattered mind. I was in a place of giving. It meant that on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I was home with the family, which could mean just watching a movie or whatever, but I could be with my family and not think, oh, what do mom and dad need? Because I had allocated and been clear about what I could give. So what that did was kept me a little healthier, and it also made my heart more willing to be whatever you need on these days. I think in life there's a lot of, there's people that are takers and givers, and rather than feeling like people were taking from me, which definitely builds, a, fosters that resentment that we can have, it would create a barrier between my parents and I or my siblings or my job, why are they asking of this from me and taking from me? Instead, no, this is my choice. I'm here to give. And it made all the difference to me. The boundaries actually give you freedom. And, <laughs> and that, that absolutely makes a lot of sense. I've also heard the phrase before from really smart people that expectations can be like premeditated resentments. Like when you have expectations of people or yourself that aren't reasonable, you're just setting yourself up to be resentful later rather than, you know, having those really clear defined roles. Then, you know, when you're at work, you're at work. When you're at home, you're at home or whatever that thing is, be fully in, be fully connected in whatever that is. And then give yourself space to be fully connected in the next thing. So that's, yeah, I, I thought that was one of my biggest takeaways from the book too, and super helpful. Sort of sort of in a similar theme, but different. You also have this great exercise where you suggest that readers consider like three words that describe what they want for their moments or as she ages or dad or whoever. And I love it because it's a simple but powerful idea because it's kind of giving you this baseline, it kind of reminds me of the previous podcast we had with Dr. Kim Fisher about what do you want in terms of end of life care? Like what is, do you want to be able to sit down and have dinner? Do you want to be able to play football? Like what is a good life for you? And also I think what you're coming from is like, what do you want for mom? Do you want her to be happy? Do you want her to, whatever it is, and then base all your decisions from that. What a great idea. Thanks. Yeah, I, and I listened to that podcast with Dr. Fisher, and I really liked that. It wasn't just about clear yes, no, CPR. It wasn't about that at all. It was about life. And I know from my mom, she had a progressive disease where she lost the ability to walk. And over the last four years, the, the last year, she could barely move a finger. So she was quite immobile. And how do you bring value to her like what things were important to mom in the past and what did we want to be giving I, I don't know that I thought of three words as much as I suggested in the book as much as yeah. what does love look like for mom and yeah. what does kindness look because my goals for mom were not that she was going to get better 
we're not going to fix this. We're not going to focus on say, um, on reversing this disease or having her walk again. It might be a goal for other parents, and that the rehabilitation might be a big piece. But for our our mom, I mentioned her clothes were important to her before. She had yeah. scarves and outfits for everything. So that was something I spent a lot of time on was how love and respect looked for my mom and kindness, those type of words. How did that look for her? And the sewing of her clothes and having outfits pre-picked was a big thing to her. So that because carrots don't have time, they don't know my mom. They don't know that yeah. she didn't like her neck. She always wanted a scarf to cover it up. Right. And, yeah. and so every outfit had a scarf and a t-shirt and a sweater and all with sewn up the back so that they were easy to put on. Yeah. So the, the clothing was more than just clothing. It was an act of love. And when we took her outside, we'd, we'd have bird feeders outside. The birds I've mentioned were really important. In fact, I just opened up their Christmas decorations and I had just inherited my mom's Christmas tree full of birds, which, uh-huh. which is a big deal because it, it's, yeah, it was always important to her. Now I don't know why I never learned more about that from her. But, and, and identifying two fears that I knew my mom had. So my love for my mm-hmm. mom was to know her fears and to try and alleviate them. Early on in her disease, asked me in a little, when she knew, understood what it was going on, she said, will it hurt? Am I going to have pain? And she was so afraid of that. And her disease wasn't a painful one, but we did have her on pain control for being immobile and made sure that that was something we kept. Whereas, you know, my dad, he had cancer and he had pain, but it wasn't a big fear of his. We managed it still. But that wasn't a big concern. So every person's parent has things that are important to them and things that are fears for them. And when you know that person well or you can respect the the decisions that you make are filtered through what would be important to mom. And one example that I'd have is that once mom moved into a facility, her swallowing and choking was a risk. So their solution was to have pureed food. Yeah. Which, as everybody knows, is not that great. And yeah. we knew she had, you know, six months to a year of eating pureed bland food. And she didn't want it. She wouldn't eat much. And we talked about it and knew that she could eat and chew and she could choke. And were we all comfortable if she choked and couldn't yeah. breathe? Which is, a, you know, a horrible thing. Most people just want to avoid all of that. But Mom was able to eat for another whole year real food and chew it and then swallow it. She'd cough a little bit, but she never did choke. Yeah. And that was something that added to the value to her life, and it was important to her. Yeah, and I love the way you're kind of filtering all your care, all your priorities through what I'm hearing is, number one, what are their fears? Like, how are we addressing the fears, whether that fear is being left alone or the fear is pain (laughs) or or mobility or whatever that fear is to what are the things that really give them quality of life, right? For your mom, it was she wanted to be able to taste and chew her food. I remember for my dad, they had him on blood thinners and he would have these constant nosebleeds. And he was like, you got to get me off these blood thinners. Like I can't handle the nosebleeds. And the doctor was like, well, if we don't, if we don't have you have blood thinners. You might have a heart attack. He's like, give me the heart attack then. Like, I don't want to deal with these mm-hmm. nosebleeds anymore. And that was him staying, stating like, 
this is a quality of life issue for me. I can't deal with this. And then I remember also, you know, the conversation around pain. He said to both my brother and I, like, I don't want to be in pain. I just don't want to be in pain. Like that needs to be your decision maker above everything else. And so when we had to make decisions, it was really easy for my brother, my mom and I to go, okay, pain is more important than this. Like it's more important, even if he feels a bit sedated or he's a bit sleepy, it's more important that we deal with the pain because he's told us himself that's his biggest thing. And so that ability to know what's the fear, what's the comfort, what's the important thing, and then work around those so that you're giving them the best that you can with and not being guided by your own fears. Not like, well, mom, you have to eat pureed food because you might choke. Well, mom just said she'd rather choke then eat pureed food. So mm-hmm. let's let her take that risk, right? And and then try to make it as safe as we can. So yeah. really great sort of almost like a lens to look through when you're making these decisions. And then another thing you talk about that I think is so amazing and it would just help so much families reduce conflict, but letting families give where they can really shine, right? Because for one person, the best way they can care give might be to go buy groceries and the other person it might be just to sit and read a book and, you know, whatever. And someone, it might be just to write a check. Like everyone has a different way that they feel comfortable and they're able to give. And I love that you talk about figuring out where everyone can give, what makes them feel good about giving, and then let them do that and not judge the person that's reading a book for not cleaning the house and not judging the person who's cleaning for not writing the check and just let everyone give where they're best able to give and kind of fit all those pieces together. Is that sometimes like a, for me, it just seems so empowering, but I'm wondering if that's a difficult concept for families to grasp or, you know, to get away from the finger pointing of, well, I did this, so you should do that. Is that a tough one? Oh, I think it's really tough. I think it takes a a bit of higher level thinking And going back to one of your earliest questions about making it more objective and setting goals, I think it's really worth having a family conversation and sitting and saying, what are the important things to mom? What are the words we're going to use? What are are our goals? And also, what what does each person, can they give? It's, It's like that that school illustration where you have all these different strengths and all these different animals. I wish I could fly. I wish I could swim. I wish I could, you know, but you're not looking at the right, the right areas to give. So for example, you sit and as a family and one daughter is providing all the meals, going grocery shopping and doing the grocery shopping errands. The other daughter is coming and cleaning the house and the son is shoveling them, then doing the maintenance and the outside work. But when you actually talk to them, you find out that the daughter that's doing the shopping just absolutely hates shopping. It's just a chore and she'll do it. The daughter who's doing the housekeeping has never liked housekeeping, but she's a shopper. And then the son who's doing all the outside work actually has skill at doing the finances and why is he not? Why don't you talk about where your strengths are early on? And then what happens is when we talked earlier about the giving and the taking is you're in an area where it's not hard for you to give. This task is not extra burdensome because it's a task that you don't feel comfortable with or you're not naturally giving. So, you know, finding finding each person's strength or like in some families, many families, you don't live in the same town. This is something that, that is, we're spread out a lot further. Mm -hmm. And I did mention in the book, a family of three children who were from 
I think one was Maple Ridge, one was Victoria, one was Vancouver. So the two of them had to take a ferry, one had to drive up. But they were so consistent. They made meals, they visited mom every three weeks. They were all on the same page. And I really, I never saw that in my own family, never saw that any other time. I know it can be done now, but it's, they sat down and one thing they did that separated them was they sat down early and talked about how they could meet mom's needs and what they would do. So I think that's the piece that when caregiving does creep up on you, you're already doing these tasks. You haven't sat and talked about which tasks you'd actually like to do. It's, and I put that workbook page in because if you can duplicate yourself, even by paying somebody else, if let's say you're the only child and you have to do all of those tasks, well, instead of doing the grocery shopping, use one of the grocery shopping apps on, online or someone from that lives far away can go online at on Superstore or Thrifties or one of the online apps and pick the groceries, pay for it, and have it delivered. Then nobody has to do that task. So some things you can take off your plate, whereas one of the family members, or maybe if there's only one, they know that there's a special traditional meal that means a lot, and they can do that. So... I know for my family, I would make pies for my dad and traditional Mennonite food and bring that for special occasions because I thought it meant a lot. And even, you know, if you've got a family that's far away and can't do anything, I think I suggest in there to buy a, send a pizza or something, say, listen, you're all putting in effort. I can't. It's cheaper than a flight. It's something I can do. And it feels like you've got skin in the game. Yeah, and a little bit of gratitude. And it kind of goes back to that beginning part where we talk with coming in with a little bit of a business mindset. Like in a business, you have a plan before you start. Like this is what it's going to look like. And this is so-and-so's job and so-and-so's job. And this is what we're going to spend on this and this. And so in those really early stages before mom goes downhill, if the family can get together and sit down and, and have that logical conversation without the emotion and figure out where everyone can give best, then, you know, you can you can really give from your heart without like trying to have those well, those conversations like you did where you come home and you're exhausted and you're pulled in all directions. Have those clear boundaries in place early on before so that you're not trying to deal with them in the midst of being overwhelmed. Yes, and I find with, with in my job that there's almost always one family member that's doing all of the caregiving, and it's quite often the daughter or the oldest daughter but or the local person. There's But there's usually one person that it falls to, and even on our case manager questions that's one of our one of the key questions is do you feel resentment for other people not giving and you know sometimes there's a family member like don't expect anything from joe he's he's actually a drug addict and doesn't have any contact with family well rather than resent that you can't expect anything from him you you probably should just recognize that early on and take it off the table rather than wait for some input which is never going to come so it's it's the good and the bad recognizing strengths but recognizing areas of weakness and recognizing limitations so that you have an honest um an honest plan as you go in 
Yeah, and those things that you can't control, right? Like the the Joe that's just never going to be there, or the <laughs> yeah. member that lives in Australia. Like you can't change that. So why waste mental energy on that, right? So yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. we are almost coming up to time. In fact, we might be over time, but we have nowhere near covered this whole book. We've just covered like some of the things that I felt were really important. The book actually has a lot more information about you know decisions around assisted living, financial considerations, kind of roles and processes certainly for bc and i think you cover some other parts of canada i can't remember lots of helpful worksheets lots of stuff in that book like i don't know maybe next year this time we do a second interview and we cover more of the 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 second half of the book because we only really got halfway through it but where can listeners get a copy of the book if they're interested in finding more also i'm going to have this in the show notes but i'm going to just let you drop any any information that they need to know before we kind of wrap up here Sure. Well, it's right now it's just on Amazon. It's on all the Amazons, but it's Kindle version and paperback version. And the advantage of the Kindle version is I did put links for all the provinces for a central site that you can find information. I did a lot of research on each province, but I could by, in, by no means exhaust how each province works. But I know that, like, for example, facility care in each place Accessing it is always through your case manager, but how each province deals with that and pays for it is slightly different. But there's a link to a central site which they click on through Kindle. In the book, that's less useful, but you can still Google each province's guidelines and connect to the proper people. And so Amazon, I'm going to go to the bookstores this next week and see if some of the local ones want to carry it, but I don't have the answer to that yet. And as we're talking, I'm still setting up my webpage, but I do have whatdoyoudoaboutmom.com because part of what I'm hoping to do in the future is offer some one-on-one because I think people's stories have some common threads, of course, but we all have our own flavors and the own area that we would like work on. And if I could listen and speak into it and be do a small consulting type of of access that would be great because between my work and my experience I think I can problem solve a lot and I I tend to think outside of the box yeah there's a lot more things to to look at because but one of the things I was just going to mention before we go is the part not that we didn't touch on is care being the only place that people can think of as a solution and that that's something I love to problem solve around are there any other creative ideas and that's something that's often best done one-on-one anyways. Yeah, yeah, that's great advice that, yeah, that you don't necessarily have to go straight to facility care, that there's so many other options in between if you can put on that creativity hat and brainstorm and, and utilize someone like yourself that's been through it, that's worked in the industry, that knows what some of those options are. The last question I usually ask everyone in different variations of it, I want to ask if there's something that you wish you'd known or done, like, differently before you ever started this journey or maybe before you went into this field or before you knew your mom was getting sick what do you wish you'd known before you started the process that you'd like to share with other people so that they can you know maybe get a head start on that well I think probably what I wish I had known is the things I've written down because I learned them through pain which is a, a you know a pain point is always how you learn best but if I had had these objective conversations and sat down and had the goals with mom dad and my siblings I think it would have been helpful and rather than something I learned along the way it would have been a nice thing to have thought of ahead of time 
which is why I encourage people to do it because it does sneak up on you. Like you're doing first a few little groceries and after you realize, oh, wait a second, mom actually needs more help than I thought. And you're already in the caregiving role and you didn't know it. So it'd be nice to have had that meeting early on and to make a plan. But, you know, I did it along the way. So I did learn that it was four and probably two years longer than I expected to have for a caregiving role. So good to know how to pace yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we all get the benefit of, of your experience also. So lots of great stuff in the book. I'm going to drop a link for the book on the website in the show notes so that you can reach out if you have questions. Or And I think that's it. I'm going to just wrap this up. Thank you so much. And that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us on the show. Just wanted to let you all know that I have a book out this year. It's called Overcoming Awkward, The Introvert's Guide to Networking, Marketing, and Sales. You can find it on Amazon, paperback, Kindle, and on Audible as an audiobook version. See you all soon. Have a great week, jugglers.